Hmm. I don't have the readings in English for you today. Uh, just an oversight on my part. Um, however, I'm sure you have your your books and your uh, your sources like Divinum Officium, uh, which is so very helpful. There's also the wonderful website Propria, Propria.org, I think it is, that has uh, many of these votive the texts of the votive masses. So I'm sure that you're able to find them. I'm celebrating a votive mass of the Holy Trinity since it's Monday, and this is the customary thing to do on Mondays when there isn't another feast or some sort that will outweigh um, the votive masses. I'm adding prayers also for the sick. I've heard uh, several uh, several people right now who are very, very ill and, um, and certainly need our prayers. And when we promise to pray for someone, well, then we should do it. And uh, so I bring them uh, all, all to the altar today and uh, pray for them so that they can, as the prayer says, uh, swiftly recover and, and give thanks to God. Um, since it is uh, a votive mass of the Trinity, I thought to share with you something called the Athanasian Creed. Now, the Athanasian Creed is attributed to St. Athanasius, who died in 373, if memory serves. Um, the creed, uh, there's a legend that Athanasius, um, during one of his exiles, gave this creed to Pope Julius, and uh, that's how it, uh, that's its origin, but it's probably from more along the lines of the 6th century, several hundred years after Athanasius. Um, it was probably composed in Latin, it certainly has that feel to it. It's very precise, and... Um, uh, precise to the point of, to a certain extent, being almost seeming pedantic. But uh, you know, when you're when you're trying to get at something like the Trinity, or those things which are um, important for salvation, um, then you want to be precise. You don't want to be want to be vague about them. And so the the thing starts: whoever would be saved um, will believe this and this and this and this. And then it lays out very precise, in very precise terms things. And it has this description of the, the Trinity in it, which uh, doesn't leave really a whole lot of doubt as to what you're supposed to believe. Now, this is one of the creeds that's recognized by the church, and it does recognized in a, uh, for liturgical use, but in a narrow sense. Um, it's included in the Breviarium Romanum, and there are, uh, there are certain days... Uh, when it was to be recited, and of course, since we can use the Breviarium Romanum today, it's therefore a liturgical creed. But we are far more familiar with the other creeds, aren't we? There's the Apostles' Creed, the uh, Symbolum Apostolorum. Uh, there's a legend, a very ancient legend, that uh, the Apostles composed it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, each one of the Apostles contributing one of the, the articles of the Apostles' Creed. So it's possible to break it down into uh, 12 uh, pieces, uh, 12 sections, if you're a little creative. St. Thomas Aquinas thought it was easier to break it down into seven pieces, and I, I think maybe that's a little closer to the mark. Um, there's the creed uh, that we say at, at Mass, um, that is the, we sometimes call it the Nicene Creed, but it's really the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, because it comes from, when, when they would conclude these councils, the ancient councils, they would issue uh, a creed, what everybody could sign on to, and they, that's what they all believe. 
And so what happened is eventually after the Nicene Council, there was a creed, and then after one of the, constant, uh, the councils of Constantinople, there was another creed, and then these uh, were uh, harmonized with each other. I believe it was at the Council of, of uh, Chalcedon that that happened. And they, so they took the, the creed uh, from Nicaea in 325, and they put it together with the Council of Constantinople in 381. And uh, so the text that we have now is the text of the Niceno or Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. Say that a few times fast. Um, Pius IV in the 16th century issued a Professio Fidei Tridentina, which is a kind of a creed. And um, then Paul VI issued. Uh, another creed, another non-liturgical creed. Um, he issued a creed called the Creed, the Credo of the People of God in 1968, and uh, for the the centenary, the 19th centenary of the of the deaths of the martyrdoms of Saints Peter and Paul, and um, it's supposed to be uh, a way to bring the faith into language uh, more adapted to uh, modern times, and uh, it's it has some very good things in it. Of course, uh, as, it, as it would. Um, but the creed that we're going to hear, that I'm going to read today, at least part of it, at least down, at least the part about the Trinity. I might not read the second part about the Incarnation, because it's a vote of mass of the Trinity. I'll stick to that. And um, it's definitely not modern language, but it is very clear. So here's part of the Quicumque Vult, I think is the Latin title of it, the Athanasian Creed, section on the Trinity. Whoever will be saved, before all things it is necessary that he hold the universal faith, which faith, unless everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the universal faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. For there is but one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Ghost. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, and the Holy Ghost uncreated the Father unlimited, and the Son unlimited, and the Holy Ghost unlimited. <coughs> the Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Ghost eternal. And yet there are not three eternals, but one eternal. As also there are not three uncreated, nor three infinities, but one uncreated, and one infinite. So likewise the Father is almighty, the Son almighty, and the Holy Ghost almighty. And yet they are not three Almighties, but one Almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God. And yet they are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son Lord, and the Holy Ghost Lord. And yet not three lords, but one Lord. For like as we are compelled by the Christian verity to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and Lord, so are we forbidden by the universal religion to say there are three gods or three lords. 
The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made, not created, but begotten. The Holy Ghost is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Ghost, not three Holy Ghosts. And in this Trinity, none is before or after another, none is greater or less than another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal, so that in all things, as aforesaid, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. He therefore that will be saved, let him thus think of the Trinity. At the then it goes into the section of the uh, about the incarnation of, of Christ, and uh, it conclude the whole thing concludes. This is the universal faith, which except a man believe truly and firmly, he cannot be saved. So it's a very strong, a very strong uh, uh, creed. Uh, creed, uh, of course, come, it comes from an old English word, uh, credo, which in turn comes from Latin credo, meaning I believe or I trust. And um, uh, this is the uh, the first word in, in Latin of, of uh, many of these creeds. The old baptismal formula creeds that were used in the early church uh, would begin credibus, uh, we, we believe. But uh, when we get down to um, our liturgical use now, um, it's always an expression of first person, even though we're all saying it together. So that's a little piece of the Athanasian creed that comes from the 6th century, um, attributed to St. Athanasius, uh, who was a great defender of uh, Catholic faith during the time of the Arians. And uh, it's something that we should we should all know about. It's good to go back and look at these ancient creeds from time to time. The creeds that come out of these the councils, the early councils, when they were trying to hack hash through uh, the many questions about the you know the, the relationship of the father and son. Is was is the son created being or an uncreated being? Then who is the Holy Spirit? How do they all relate together? Um, how do the natures of Christ, uh, human and divine? Uh, work together. How does that? How do they all fit? They all had to figure these things out and come up with language to describe it. And as they had different opinions and they fought about it, they had to come up with creedal statements that um, were acceptable to both sides, so that everyone could sign it. And then that would be great. It would create some unity. And then there would be another question, another controversy. And then down the line, there had to be another creed, and they became more and more specific and more and more accurate. As we begin to, as a church, uh, explore all the ramifications of our faith, and uh, slowly but surely uh, working things out and coming to greater clarity, uh, this is one of the reasons why it is a, it's a very dangerous thing um, to uh, say, well, we have to cut ourselves off from our past and do something now in a wholly different way, abandoning the way of our of our forebears, or, on the other hand. Um, cutting off, going back in a kind of what Pius XII would have called a, a false archaeologizing and going back and saying, well, we, we're going to go back to a pristine way of doing things before all these other changes were added on to it. No, no, we want to get back to the, the original ways. And, of course, that ignores the fact that over centuries and so forth, uh, people who have deep faith and love um, 
began to uh, reflect on things and understand how things, uh, the, the ramifications of what it means, for example, to receive Holy Communion. So they moved from uh, a certain kind of practice, the reception of Holy Communion, to something that was, frankly, more reverent. Because as Eucharist, faith in the Eucharist grew, and the implications of what the Eucharist is, uh, grew and, and dawned on the, the, the collective mind of the church, and we began to discover more about it, um, then our practice changed, our belief changed, our liturgical practices changed. Remember that liturgy is doctrine. Liturgy is doctrine. They go hand in hand. And so if you change the one, slowly but surely the other changes too. This is that old adage, lex orandi, lex credendi. If you change you know, the way we believe, then you change the way we worship. If you change the way we worship, eventually the way we, what we believe will change. So this has to be a very slow and organic process. Um, governed always by the authority of the church under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, one of three persons of the Trinity. Dominus obisum, oremus. Benedictus in Deus Pater, unigenitus quid et filius, sanctus quoque spiritus, qui fecit nobiscum misericordiam suam. <coughs> 